Hi there, Dishheads. Welcome to another Dishcast. We've had a stellar run lately, and no one's more stellar than John McWhorter, whom I have the pleasure of talking to this week. John is, well, you probably know who he is. He's one of the, the most reasoned and composed and smart and relentless advocates for a liberal society and for and against what he calls woke racism, which is the title of his new short book. I was just saying to John, this is like the easiest assignment ever because this book is a very quick read. It's more of a pamphlet, really, a polemic in many ways than a, than a, than a big scholarly book. And I love those tracts. They're important. They're part of our conversation. And insofar as we go from tweets to blog posts to essays, this is a, another way, a better way of actually making these cases. He's a linguist at Columbia and is disproving all of us worried about cancel culture by being hired by the New York Times to do their newsletter. He does that twice a week now. How are you finding that, John? How's that new gig going? Well, I've taken on a second full-time job, which is a lot, but it's a challenge, but a pleasant challenge to come up with something to say that people are actually supposed to want to read every three days. And, you know, I tend not to write short. So really, if it's up to me, it it always comes out 1,500 words. So it's a lot of work, but, you know, life is short, and I figure I will try to do this because, of course, the pulpit is large. But yeah, it has changed a lot of the contours of my life. Yeah, well, hang in there. It's it's a uh, <laughs> that obligation, you know, can be quite onerous over time, but it creates a different kind of intimacy with readers, would you say? I mean, you're sending this out to them rather than you send it. It's it, that interaction is kind of slightly different than writing a, a column or an article in a newspaper or a site, right? Yeah, we're working on what the contours of it are going to be, but certainly you know, newsletters are going to come along that refer back to other ones. I'll be sharing the progression of my thoughts. There'll be hot takes. I'm hoping that's the way it can be, because I would like it to be a piece of me during this particular time, because I really do feel a duty to speak out for what I believe is the majority of thinking people at this time. But a lot happens. It happens quickly. Sometimes you change your mind. Sometimes you're mad. Sometimes you're happy. And I'd like to see if I can record that in this series of conversations with the public. Yes, it's a very uh, humanizing and sometimes kind of humiliating yeah. process of seeing yourself in action. I've seen, I had that experience You've been walking there. all yeah. these years, yes. But I want to talk about the book, obviously, because it's on what to my mind is one of the most important topics that we are debating right now. And it seems to me that the, one of your key arguments is that this new orthodoxy, shall we say, ideology, whatever we want to call it, best approximates a religion. Now, tell me what, in your view, designates a religion that applies to wokery. Let's call it that for the the time Mm -hmm. being. You know, there's a fine line between ideology, as we've all always understood it, and a religion. And I already have some critics who are saying that my religion analogy is strained. And I know what they mean, and to an extent we're talking about semantics. But I say that it's a religion primarily for two reasons. One of them is that there is involved in this particular strain of wokeness, not just being a liberal, not just being a leftist, but being an evangelical 
prosecutorial hard leftist of this modern kind. That kind of leftism involves a willful suspension of disbelief in many cases, which is highly reminiscent of what is core to many kinds of religious belief, where you go beyond what makes strict sense and there's an extent to which you have to have faith. So very quickly, the whole dialogue that we have where the defining experience of being a black person, especially a black man, is to fear being manhandled or killed by a white cop. That makes no logical sense because as hideous as what happened to George Floyd was, and we can all recount other episodes, the typical black man in an underserved community is at much more danger of being killed by another black man. The danger is infinitely larger. And yet the concern among the sorts of people we're talking about is infinitely smaller for that phenomenon. Any smart 10 year old coming from another planet, if we can stretch the analogy, would find that utterly confounding that we're more concerned with the stray white cop than what actually is something that a person in that community really should walk around wondering whether it's gonna happen to them. And the reason is because not people are crazy. I think it's lazy to just say everybody's crazy. That's not thinking, it's not crazy. It's that there is a religion that specifies that your main goal is to show that you're aware that racism exists. With Darren Wilson, a white cop, you can show that you know racism exists. If you talk about what's going on within black communities and you talk about black on black crime, I know one's not supposed to use that term, but I'm going to, that's not showing that you know racism exists. And so that automatically becomes less interesting. That is quite simply illogical. The only way that goes through is if people are operating according to the exact same frame of mind that leads you to stress some things over others if you are a person of a certain kind of religion. And then also, once again, there are people who are going to say, well, that's just ideology. But there's more. There are the eerie parallels with actual fundamentalist religion, the parallel between the way people talk about white privilege and original sin, the parallel in the body language people are beginning to use to be uh, hyper woke or what I call elect person as opposed to what's done in Christianity. And finally, just the sense that people who are in disagreement are not just wrong, but they are filthy. They are heretics. They can't be around. And frankly, the example that I always use is you. <laughs> and what happened to you at New York Magazine, and most importantly, during a time when nobody was ever in the same room. All of that happened virtually, but the people in question considered you such a scourge to be associated with or around. It's this. It's exactly this, except with different vocabulary. That, to me, goes over a line. This is not Mao. This is religious thought, although the, there's a fine line. Whatever it is, it's incompatible with running a state. And that's one of my claims in the first chapter of the book. Let me challenge you on a couple of those points. Of course, they would come back and say, yes, you're describing these realities. There is a much greater likelihood statistically of a black man fearing, let's say, a fellow civilian than a cop. And in fact, you could provide the stats on that. And it, it, there's not really any empirical question about it. It's also... It was my impression last year that people had a completely false idea of the, the scale of the definite problem of shooting black men who were not armed and who were not guilty and were not threatening people. It's it actually in a country of 330 million, I think reasonably would be tiny. But what they would say is, ah, yes, but you see, you're not seeing the real reality behind this superficial reality. 
that that these actions look this way, but you see, we're smarter than you. Our eyes have been opened. We can see that's not what's really going on, that what's going on, for example, in inner city crime is white supremacy having uh, suppressed these people forever, providing them with no... And in some ways, I, I had Brianna Joy Gray on here, and, and she was she even went to like the government, the CIA introducing drug, all that stuff. But they're saying, no, you just not seeing these facts in the broader context that alone can make sense of them, right? Which is that we actually, there was a sign in a store in Provincetown last year, which is that white supremacy is the water we swim in. In other mm -hmm. words, they see it everywhere. That's less a sort of we want to, we have this otherworldly view of the world. It's that we see the world more accurately than you do. How do you, uh, you know, counter that particular position? I hear that as a kind of religious suspension of disbelief that the people genuinely aren't aware that they're operating under. And so you just think to yourself, what other group in human history has adopted the idea that kids shooting each other in the face over sneakers in their hundreds, to use the old expression, in cities across the nation every summer, that that phenomenon is the best that they can do because white people don't see them clearly enough or don't like them enough. The connection is extremely indirect. We're talking about Rube Goldberg. We're talking about Mousetrap. It's highly abstract, and that's what creates some of these analogies to something that you swim in, that it's always so vague. These are very sloppy definitions and defenses. And what it is, is a group of people, and it's actually a subgroup of a group of people, who have been taught to frame themselves as victims of racism because they sense that is what makes them significant. They sense this as a comfort zone. And they're not doing this on purpose. They're not doing it to be deliberately manipulative. But let's say that those kids shooting each other in the face ultimately is due to something white people did or didn't do probably a long time ago. The question is, how do you address that today? What do you do today? Is the answer to go change white racism? And if that's your real answer, you know, you're not going to deny that you're talking about something that would take at least 50 years. And in the meantime, a mother just watched her child being killed. Wouldn't one want to be more proactive than that? Well, the, the, the this proactive is, this is an is extremely it... abstract way of looking at ourselves, which only makes sense under a context where we are being asked to think in ways that human beings otherwise have never found constructive. They talk of structures and systems that essentially mandate certain individual actions or seem to penetrate in a bunch. It seems to me you can't really analyze this entirely within religion unless you also understand it's sort of a Marxist idea of human history, that there are forces that exist that, that are much more powerful than any of the individual actors in these contexts, that in fact that is the salient. It's not empirical in that sense. Well, it's, it's less empirical than Marx, of course, who was really making some serious empirical claims, which have been subsequently <laughs> refuted. But nonetheless, it's a yeah. sort of sublimation of that in, in cultural ways. And it's it, a brilliant use of the fear, as you put it, of being called a racist, and indeed the legitimate and profound truth that this country has endured in the past and has perpetrated racist public policy in, in, in some of the cruelest and most hideous fashion possible. Now, 
you also one of the things you, you do here is you also say, don't mistake these people for crazy fanatics. They are regular people. They're humans like you. They have <laughs> families. They're nice to each other. They're sane most of the time. They don't regard themselves as apparatchiks of a cultural revolution in a way. <clears throat> Except I got to believe that sometimes, God, if there, if these administrators, like this recent Yale Law School thing, I mean, how do you write a letter telling, nice career you've got there. If you don't write this apology, you know, you could suffer. I don't know how a nice regular person would get into the situation they'd be doing that. So tell, explain that. You know, you know these woke people. I, I don't interact with many of them, to be honest. I'm not in an institution <laughs> where I'm forced to. And, I, and in general, my friends don't have that kind of worldview. That, that I think they're more <laughs> realistic. They're more, more, more connected to reality myself. But how do we counter the banality of this? You know, I think we have to always keep in mind not only that the people who think this way are for the most part thoroughly nice people who truly revile racism, but have drifted into a sense of self-gratification and a sense of their worth as human beings, which leads them to rank it over everything else, including civility out of a sense that to make an omelet, you have to crack some eggs. That doesn't make a person evil. It just makes a person frankly, often extremely annoying and willfully elementary in their thinking, but not a bad person. In the book, I have this eccentric vision, I don't know where I got it, of the elect person who plays the ukulele barefooted and is drinking little bourbon. Just of this perfectly nice person who is you know, ready to throw somebody out of a window if they you know, express certain ideas. But most people who are going along with this are just going along because they're scared. I think of it as the weirdest socio-historical cocktail. First, in the 70s, even personal racism, as opposed to actual, you know, enforced segregation, personal racism starts to be seen by civilized people as almost equivalent to pedophilia. That's a good thing, even if sometimes it goes a little overboard, doesn't everything. And that's a good thing. And then you have something called social media that comes along where you can be put in the stocks in an instant and made to look like a complete fool and made to practically want to kill yourself. Once that comes along, you have a certain kind of person who comes up with this predicate that if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to flame you on social media out of a sense of duty because that's what good people do. And that is so frightening to this new brand of American who doesn't want to be called a racist in public that nine out of 10 people just knuckle under. And so the culture that I see, and I've only seen so much of it because, to be honest, it has been the mundane fact that most of the extreme of this happened after the lockdown. And so it's not that I've been sitting in meetings watching these people across the table, but I've known the drill. I've seen it coming for 20 years. It's just what happened after social media and then a pandemic is that most people agree with, frankly, you and me, the typical person, even people who are you know, Bernie voters, get that there's this new pitchfork version of the left that comes for you. And you'd rather stay out of the way because most people have other things to do. And so you end up having this hegemony of people whose thinking patterns are frankly extremely flawed, but nobody wants to be called a bigot on Twitter. And I think that state of affairs is so nauseating, so mendacious and so frightening that it made me write a book when I had no business writing one. But it's, it's also not that new in America. I mean, this is a Puritan country. I, I sometimes think that Harvard has simply returned to its roots as a divinity school in preaching this religion. The, the, the old Harvard would police people's 
language. You couldn't use certain bad words and you could use other words, that everything was in the context of this broader divine struggle. And you also have these obvious continuing and regular upswellings of moral panic that seek people who are heretics in a new moral cause, which is often pulsing through American history, these enthusiasms. The Scarlet Letter, for example, Salem, the Hollywood Blacklist, the Lavender Scare, the 1980s childcare craze. Remember when everybody running a childcare center was a, was a pedophile unless proven otherwise. I do remember uh, that, yeah. The, the hysteria around these things and the willingness of people themselves, not the government, which is what's interesting. I think it's partly because we've never had an established religion here, that everybody creates their own religion, so therefore they create their own witch hunts. And so this, may, this would lead one to believe that even though this has captured the entire elite, it may wane once the passions have been intensified. And maybe what really set this afire was the incredibly visceral video. First of all, a succession of videos of police incident that created this sense, this image in people's heads. So you also didn't just have social media, you had clips, video clips, showing the same horrible, ghastly stuff. No video clips of someone, a cop showing a black person across the street or none of that, just, just these horrible moments, which are yeah. horrible. And that, especially with the, the George Floyd case, then with the population stuck at home with nothing to do, this was a one-off event that created a convulsion that people have, that, that the smart people within the, the new religion have recognized as an incredibly good moment to try and get some of this stuff done permanently. So is that a reason for optimism or pessimism? It is. And, you know, I was refraining from saying that as recently as six months ago, because all of this has happened so quickly. Yeah. And most of my writing of the book took place when, you know, we were all fish who don't know that they're wet and it was hard to see outside of, of the, the, the yeah. bowl. But at this point, yes, I completely agree with you. It's partly that the George Floyd case was especially egregious and was captured so graphically and you could just see it. But then, to be honest, if that had happened under normal times, it would have been a, a hideous story, but it wouldn't have set a movement going. It was because by the time that happened, everybody had sat at home for a couple of months, and it was right around that time when it really started getting around in late May, when all of us were beginning to realize this wasn't going to end soon. We're almost forgetting what it felt like when it hit in March, and people were talking about just a couple months. By May, we realized this is basically forever. And the weather was getting good. And I think people, I completely forgive it. People wanted to get outside. People wanted to be communal. People were looking for a sense of community. And all of that led to, yes, this elect kind of person, as I call them, taking this as an opportunity. I don't know if they were thinking of it deliberately, but their kind of rhetoric ended up setting Tinder afire in a way that wouldn't it wouldn't have a year ago. And we're at the point where now we can go outside again. And I do think that we're going to see a pendulum shift back. But I'm trying to be part of a movement to make it clear to people who are sitting on the fence. This book is not written to the elect. I consider them unreachable. It's to people who watch them in fear and start to let their behavior be affected by them. Let them know that we need to get back to business as usual as quickly as possible. And it's important that business as usual is not chasing the elect out of the room. I don't think they should be thrown out of windows. They should be asked to do what they were doing a year ago. Well, now, two years ago, which is just sit back down, 
sit down and interact with the rest of us and give us your contributions. And most of them will not be followed any more than most of the rest of our contributions will be followed. The way things happen is via consensus happening slowly. I guess that makes me conservative. I guess I'm Burkean in saying that. But the idea well, that they can <laughs> see the poster. It's 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 got. They have a poster behind me that says, has a picture of Darwin as Shepherd Fairy, oh my God. and it says, "Very gradual Very change gradual. you can believe in." <laughs> Do you know? I did not catch that. Yes, that, that makes sense perfect. There <laughs> right. it is. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I. I fully believe that. And what's happened since, just very quickly, is that kind of person stands up and yells and gets everything they want. That's not how a nation should be run. But it's also true that the last year, for example, in the federal government, in most major institutions and in major corporations, there has been a systematic effort to, to, to hire and to do all personnel decisions with an incredibly strong emphasis on people being the right race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever. And, and you know, if you're, if, yeah, I mean, the, these things have become, let's put it, it's systemic. I mean, there is a systemic system of racism that has been set up to discriminate against those who don't fit into the proper categories on the, the ladder of social justice victimhood, right? I mean, in some yeah. ways, I, they don't say the word that has been used to describe this for most regular people sounds like something you do with the stock market, equity, which is a code word that they've introduced in a way that confuses people. And it sounds like equality. And before you know, you don't realize it. But also that a man like Joe Biden, remember Joe Biden is supposed to be this like old fashioned kind of Democrat. He is running on the social cultural, the most extreme left wing administration in the history of the United States, makes Obama look like he was, which is a moderate conservative. So mm -hmm. something has also happened here. That the people at the very top throughout the society have understood that if we look at our workforce and we don't see enough people of that, that, this, and that identity, we're in trouble. We're actually morally mm -hmm. flawed. Even if we have not been racist in determining who should get a job or whatever, we've just ended up that way. And isn't that part of the brilliant appeal of this is that you can see instantly you know, if you walked into a crowd as an evangelical Christian, you can't tell who's saved and who isn't. You can't tell, <laughs> you know, you can't tell immediately that there's a problem. But you walk in, the visuals of this are so fascinating. That's what, that's what also gives it power. And the very simple argument, the Kennedy argument, that if this isn't directly representative of everything, everyone in the country, then it's a function of racism. That is, again, the crudeness is partly its strength. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing about that. For someone to stand up and say, if there's a disparity, then it's due to black people being discriminated against in some way. And notice I'm using the present tense. Someone stands up and says that, 99 out of 100 people know that it's utter nonsense. Now, the problem is that 98 out of 100 people see that the person saying that has dark skin and dreadlocks and an African sounding name. And they're scared to their socks that to express how they really feel is going to get them called a dirty name. And that's where we are. And so your question is whether following the tenets of somebody like that and people who pretend to agree with him is going to permanently change the nation. And this is what I'm thinking. And this stretches my abilities to prognosticate with confidence. But to the extent that a lot of the racism behind those um, discrepancies was in the past, 
and therefore can't always be addressed by changing the racism. That point, I think, is beyond the reflective powers of Ibram Kendi, but most people can see it. To the extent that's true, this business of instant equity is going to make it clear that we are getting in the way of certain aspects of what's called qualification, what's called ability, what's called preparation. If that sort of thing starts getting in the way of the operation of daily society, I imagine that over 10 years, there'll be a realization that we need to get real about that again and use racial preferences the way they were being used quite robustly by all institutions before, but not in this way that pretends that this shoulder shrugging, oversimplistic vision of people like Kendi actually makes sense. And Kendi too. I don't think that he's being manipulative. I don't think that he is you know, seeking funding or money or fame. I don't get that impression from him at all. I hate to say, I get the impression that there's only so far into things that he sees. The problem is that people look upon him and because of what he stands for, pretend to think like he does. That's what we have to see what will become a fashion rather than a permanence. And from what I've seen, I've been around now doing this kind of thing for about 20 years. People come and go. There are fashions. You've seen more than I have. And I hope that's what we're seeing here too. Yeah, but of course they have this fantastic response to this, and which gets to the core of your argument that it's a religion. Empirical proof that it's not working would, in a rational sense, ask you, well, why is it? What have we done wrong? For them, every failure is merely proof, further proof of the fundamental structural inability to fix this, that there is something profound about the notion that nothing is ever good enough. Mm -hmm. And that even if certain kinds of racism, we can find other kinds of racism beyond it, we have to, it's non-falsifiable. And that gives it this capacity to continue even if it's, I mean, look at something like defund the police, right? Has any slogan been more swiftly, empirically refuted in, in history? It's been a matter of nine months between that mm-hmm. and Eric Adams storming to victory in New York City. Mm-hmm. We will soon find out in Virginia if the same thing is happening in terms of, of imposing critical race theory concepts into high schools. Whether in Virginia, there's a big groundswell of saying, hold on a minute, like what? Um, but but it doesn't seem to affect anybody in the elites. I don't see any qualms about this. I see that insofar as these incidents emerge, they are dismissed or reframed in ways that I mean, even if you see a large numbers of African-American young men or homeless people attacking Asians in the street, which is the overwhelming. And if you even look at the formal hate crimes data in New York City, it's overwhelmingly black, proportion, disproportionately black. Extremely we're inconvenient still, fact, yes. But we're, we're still, it didn't, there was not a single story acknowledging that, except insofar as it did that those African-Americans were simply instruments of white supremacy, multiracial whiteness emerged. Now, so you get to the point where there's no real empirical engagement with this. You can't say, this failed. Yeah. Those people are utterly unreachable. And I say in the book that, you know, imagine trying to teach somebody to whom Christianity is very important, that Jesus does not love them. That would be, you know, you'd be lucky to change one in 500 people if that's what you chose to do. We're talking about a religious belief here that is, is pernicious, unlike that one, but you can't change it. And so the issue is, whether or not we're gonna stand up to these people who you're calling the elites. And so for example, yes, 
10 years from now, 20 years from now, that same kind of person is going to insist that America is this racist cesspool, that any disparities that still remain are due to racism. That's all they can do. And I get it. To take that away from them would be like telling me that I can never put pen to paper again. I write like I breathe. I have since I was three years old, to be perfectly honest. That I can't not write. If somebody told me I couldn't write, you, you would find me, you know, I would be trying to end my own life. I would, I, no purpose. I can't do what I want to do. That's those people. If you took this away from them, they wouldn't feel like they had a leg to stand on. And I pity them. I, I almost wouldn't want to do it. Glenn Lowry and I had a conversation about one of these people. I call them the people with three names. and I'm not going to say who they are. <laughs> but I said, we shouldn't go too far after this person, because if you took that away from them, what would they have to stand on? And I meant it. But the thing is, suppose we have this. There's a certain kind of person who's now saying you must hire a black woman for this position. And they keep doing that. And let's say the results aren't terrible, but they aren't incredible. And 10 years from now, 15 years from now, there's a slate of candidates and about two thirds of them are white. It's painfully clear that there's a white one who's better than any of the others. And people start saying, you know what, this time we're going to hire her. We're going to hire the white one. And I'm sorry if you want to call us racist because we didn't hire the black one because they were black. Shout it out loud. Have fun. That's what I'm hoping will happen. Now, what you might be worried about, Andrew, is that it's going to get to the point that everybody who's in a position to make or sanction any decision is going to be one of these pitchfork people. I'm not sure there are enough of them for that to happen, but we can see. Yeah, that is fascinating. The other religious element that struck me as kind of important is that you describe this movement as religious, but it's also true, is it not, that the civil rights movement of the, the 50s and 60s was also a religious movement, that that it, primarily, but it was a real religion. I mean, it was Christianity, and to me, there are two key differences. And I'd love to hear your response to this between Christianity and this. The first is that Christianity accepts the permanence of injustice. Its resolution of that is the afterlife, is that there will be, and insofar as there is an earthly thing, it's going to be eschatological like Marx. I mean, it is going to end with the second coming and then everything will be made new. There's no such future in neo-Marxist social justice theory. It is, there's no God, there's nothing divine, there's nothing transcendent, and it will never work. <laughs> because there will never be full racism. I mean, we read Tanahasi, it's as if, the United States could make every possible adjustment. It would never be enough. He, I mean, he especially says at one point, unless you, and this is what they mean by dismantling the entire system, that you that in order to get what you need to do, you're going to have to dismantle everything in this country. So, and secondly, that Christianity seeks converts, but it also, and it has pursued heretics, but it also forgives. And it also gives sinners the possibility of continuing. I, my own branch is all about constant adjustment of your sins and getting rid of them week by week, <laughs> day by day, and acknowledging them. So it's a much more punishing form of religion without any of the sort of uh, transcendent benefits of it, it seems to me. I, I find that incredibly yeah. dark. Yeah. The people who are the parishioners in this religion, for them, the tenderness comes, the humanity comes in the feeling that the white people supposedly have for the black people and the racism that we suffer. And so it doesn't feel as punitive to them. 
And for the black people who are religious in this particular way, it's, it's a lot to ask them to be forgiving. But what's important is that during the classic civil rights revolution, that's exactly what the leaders called for, despite the physical violence that was involved. And I can feel some people thinking, in terms of the suspension of disbelief, wasn't it a suspension of disbelief in 1949 to think that there could ever be desegregation? And the answer is no. Those people knew that these things could happen slowly, that they saw something blowing in the wind, and they worked at it with grassroots agitation and talking to the people in power to the extent that they could. Whereas what we have now it's a suspension of disbelief that just says anything we can say or do that makes it clear that we know racism exists is more important than helping actual black people out in the real world. And I would say that actually, though, there is a rapture with elect ideology, and it's this day when, quote unquote, America comes to terms with race. And so, for example, ta Coates doesn't seem to think that day is ever coming, but you know, that's one variation on this kind of thought. But there's supposedly this notion that America is going to come to terms. But the problem is that idiom here has no meaning. What would the terms be? Who would decide exactly what kind of moment in this enormous country are we even talking about where terms were come to? Nobody has any sense of it. It's just an abstract concept that means that this is a religion where what's going on today is a cesspool, but there's a great day coming in the future. Nobody can be quite specific as to how it's going to happen, but we have to pray and hope that it's coming and pride ourselves on being part of getting towards this abstract, unthinkable, utterly unrealistic conception of the <laughs> rapture. It's, it's a religion. When you ask yourself in the book, What's wrong with it being a religion? Your answer is, it hurts black people. Isn't that a little narrow? Doesn't it hurt everyone to to believe in delusions? Uh, to now, I, it seems that many black people have more to lose from being distracted from the actual problems and the actual solutions. So that's obviously the case. But explain to me more what you mean by black people. It hurts black people. All of this is bad for the race. And that's the reason I wrote the book. I think there's some people who think that I wrote an extension of the articles I've written making the religion piece, but frankly, I bore easily and I would not write a whole book about that. That's the first chapter, but then there's more, second chapter, I think actually. But then there's it's more, and the main point, yeah. the main point is, is that it hurts people. And so, you know, to take, to take one example, you look at the fact that black boys are suspended or sometimes expelled from school more than other boys because of violence. That is true. They are suspended more. And you take, for example, this Kendi position and you figure that disparity must be due to racism. And you listen to a certain kind of person say that's a, to my knowledge, that goes back 30 years. It's not just Kendi, but that kind of person. And, you know, it's all expressed with an almost church-like kind of alliteration. I've seen this work with audiences. You talk about the bigotry against black boys and those three Bs just get the audience going as if that's the truth, the bigotry against black boys. And you just, well, it must be that because it couldn't be that those boys are more violent. All statistical evidence makes it painfully clear that they are. And you don't have to think of that as a matter of some sort of pathology. These boys are disproportionately poor. These boys are disproportionately growing up without dads. The question would be why they wouldn't be more violent in school, but they are. It's clear that the numbers are painfully clear. And this is shown in newspapers across the country. You know, journalists do 
diligent stories and the journalists are all trained to smoke out racism, they all find the same thing. Nevertheless, as you say, minds don't change. The idea is that people are bigoted against these black boys. They get in a little scuffle behind school and they get expelled. But if the white kids or the South Asian kids did it, they would just get smacked on the hand. It's just not true. So what happens is that in quote unquote progressive school districts, they start going easier on black boys. And that means that more people get beat up in the schools and the GPA of the schools goes down to the extent that's happened. Now, we're not supposed to talk about that. But what that means is that it's not just bigotry against black boys who are violent, but to the extent that the elect kind of person thinks, well, you know, I, I just not there's a certain kind of person who does the original kind of critical race theory, the actual legal articles, who would say about that, if those boys are beating up kids in those schools, well, society deserves it. They are basically expressing, you know, what America has done to them. And they're thinking of the boys as white. No, this hoists these people on their own petard. Remember that a great many black kids, and especially all of the ones who were poor for the most part, go to schools where most of the other kids are black or Latino. And so these boys are being sent to schools to beat up black boys and girls and teachers. We don't talk about that. So the whole bit about bigotry against black boys makes for great theater, but it hurts black people. One but can the, write a chapter move, where one describes 15 things like that. The move that they would make in response to that, and increasingly, is that the very ideas that being disruptive, showing up on, not showing up on time, interrupting other people, these are actually functions of whiteness. Uh, that mm -hmm. the idea that you should sit quietly in a classroom is something, or without disrupting, is a white thing. And, mm -hmm. and th th that we have to alter the general value system so that it doesn't become a norm. Now, to my mind, and I think to any sort of normie person who hasn't been born again, and that's another word for woke, it's really born again. That seems absolutely disastrous, but that is the position held, right? I mean, if, for example, mastering reading and writing is something in which uh, African-American kids are doing worse, it's because reading and writing are white functions, and it's really a, teaching them to read and write within certain targeted goals within certain standards is itself a function of racism. It, it gets to a point that there's no personal responsibility, no agency at all among the, the boys doing the bullying or the disrupting, right? But how do you counter that except to say, are you out of your minds? Do you really think <laughs> it's a good, it's that you really think that only white people are capable of meeting deadlines, of showing up on time, of being courteous, of speaking civilly, of all the other things that, that actually make a successful citizen in, in, a, in the modern world. You know, it's, um, it's risky of me to say this and to essentialize a little bit, but in my experience, the literature that fashionable notion is based on is created by a certain kind of white woman that is less likely to be heard from a black man or a black woman that there's a certain kind of white woman involved in education or adjacent fields who cherishes that notion. And there are times when I almost want to ask that white woman, what would you prefer to see black people doing? And I swear that what that person is really thinking is that it's really cool to watch black people raising their voices, rapping and dancing. I can barely think of anything else that they would consider it black to do except play basketball. And so all of these wonderful things in themselves 
But to make that point about punctuality and exactness and raising your hand and politeness, claiming that those are white things while you're sitting there with one eye on your iPhone, you're about to go to your car and open it with a key that opens it long distance. And you've got the new thing in your car where parallel parking is easier because you can see out the back through the little screen and it makes noise. If you're benefiting from all that and you're saying that the black thing to do is to just jam and be charismatic because we're all so intuitive, then you're full of shit. I consider that racism in another guise because anybody who spends their life being spontaneous and social and jamming is not going to invent much of anything except maybe different kinds of drums and they'll happen upon interesting cuisine. Food and music is nice, but that is basically saying that black people are dumb. And that kind of person is going to say, how do we decide what dumb is? And to the extent that she then looks on her phone to see whether she's late for something, she has the answer to her question. Right. There is the soft bigotry of low expectations. This is the hard bigotry of no expectations. I mean, I live in the city most of the year, D.C., where you know, defund the police was written in bold capitals under the blessing of the mayor on the street so large you could see it from space. Not from space, but from the sky. Sorry, <laughs> not quite that big. <laughs> um, I like uh, that. From a drone, put it that way. But anyway, it was, they were big ass letters. Let me put it that way. And we were all thrilled about it. And now we see two-year-olds, three-year-olds being shot dead in their yards. You see the victims of this are overwhelmingly African-American. Many of them are, are utterly innocent of any connection with any of this. It is where does the, I mean, here you get the sense that there's also this fight back against the notion that there is a culture of poverty and of violence. But I, I can't get my head past the idea that you can not hold someone responsible for shooting a two-year-old. Right? I mean, I don't know how conceivably that isn't a matter of shame, how there could be any conceivable defense. When I talk, when they, when I'm told poverty is causing this, and the, these people are simply a function of white supremacies, I just say, are you really telling me that you think someone because they are African American cannot make the moral decision not to shoot someone dead? <laughs> I mean, really, do is, is agency so absent that you'll even exonerate them for murder, and that those who are imprisoned for murder? are therefore victims of a political system, not a criminal justice system, in which I sit, I sat there and watched 13, I sat there trying to figure out Michelle Alexander, and I'm like, you're just, you're just conflating so many different things here. Are you really telling me that mass incarceration happened because white people decided they're just gonna pick up random black boys on the street and jail them for no reason? No, that isn't what happened at all. But I know no one under 30 that doesn't think that's what happened. And yeah, to be monotonous, this is why I talk about the suspension of disbelief, because the sad truth is that there are a great many people, and yeah, it's an alarming number of people now just under 30 of all walks and all colors, but there's a certain kind of especially black commentator who will tell you, sipping their latte, looking over their glasses, that the death of that two-year-old is regrettable, is sad, is a tragedy, but you have a hard time getting them to say it was disgusting. They don't feel that visceral recoil because they genuinely think that the person who did that did it because of racism in some way. What moves them more is the thought of a white cop 
pushing that guy up against a wall and frisking him and possibly hitting him on the head with a billy club or killing him. They're much more moved by that. And that person is often quite educated, will tell you that there's a difference between being murdered by a representative of the state and being murdered by a citizen. In which case, I say, what do you tell the mother? Do you think that makes a difference to anybody but a few journalists and academicians that it's a matter of the state rather than someone else? And there's a heartlessness in that that only makes sense if you have been trained to build your entire sense of purpose around showing that you know that black people are subject to discrimination. I and that feeling... A, I think there's a way, though, of saying that there it does matter more when it's an agent of the state, because that has the power of the government behind it, which allegedly represents you, that does not in any way minimize the evil and the moral indignation one should feel at 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds passing by and shooting up a garden, pursuing one of their gang rivals and killing innocents in the process. I, and I, mean, I think it's possible to make those both those points. We should be able to make both, but, you know, it's hard for we human beings to deal with gray zones. It's not a natural way of thinking. We have to always check ourselves for being able to do it. And as we see, it's very easy to fall out of it. And so I think the a common consensus is exemplified by, for example, The Wire which I think of as a magnificent human achievement. I mean, just truly one of the best books ever written, so to speak. But I think that the scene where the Wendell Pierce character takes Omar to task and basically does the conservative argument to an extent, the thing is that sticks out. That's a special moment. And the rest of The Wire, although it deals with moral ambiguity, the idea is that we see things from the perspective of those black guys who are underserved, and it's extremely valuable for that. But generally, the furthest that, not to single out Michelle Alexander, but that kind of thinker is going to go is, yeah, Omar needs a talking to, but really it's society that is at fault here. And if anything, Omar, in the grand scheme of things, is a product of the society as well. It's just that he's not making the best choices. And I don't know if we can get any further. Well, I do know you can get no further on that with a certain kind of person. But our strategy must be to work around people like this and not let them run the country. What I would, what I've kind of been grappling towards is how best to respond to some of these arguments because it's important, even though they don't want to have the argument with us, it's important to to understand how you would have that argument in in person. And my view is that the key strength they have, which is that you're defending racism is to say absolutely not, to concede that there is absolutely a kernel of truth, even in critical race theory, in as much as there have been structures. There were legal structures, there were constitutional structures that, that enforced the, the subordination of people according to their race. We agree. It was horrifying insofar as it still has impact. It's a real problem that I would like to figure out practically how to solve, but I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure reparations can work, practically speaking, which is where I would go, and it's where ta obviously refused to go because it would have made his argument a little less morally crude. And so what you say is, I agree with you, but that's not the only thing that matter here. The, the society is also affected by other things. So America is not just defined 
by this racism. It's also defined by a commitment to religious freedom. It's also defined by a, a rare commitment to the equality of citizens that it subsequently tried to achieve. It's committed to entrepreneurship. It's committed to all sorts of other factors that have shaped the country, including shaped African-Americans. I mean, to, to tell the story of African-Americans without telling the story of American Christianity and its incredible efflorescence in, in those communities is to miss a huge amount of history. In other words, you say, you're right to a point but you're massively overrating this and not allowing any complications from it. And that's your problem. Mm -hmm. You're not being smart enough. You're not being subtle enough. And in fact, you're, at the same time, you're not offering any solutions to this, really, apart from our, the self-flagellation of whites and the con continuing excuse-making, let's put it that way, for mm -hmm. the failure of some elements of African-American society to, to progress. Uh, does that, mm -hmm. now let me get to that. You have, you say you have solutions to this. Mm -hmm. How, practically um, speaking, what would you, if you were to say, rather than imposing this kind of critical theory uh, analysis on and this is what we should do, what are the things that you want to do? Well, I think that many people would find them rather mundane, but that's because I'm approaching all of this from a, problem-solving perspective, perhaps discomfortingly disconnected from my emotions for mm -hmm. many people. Everything that you just said is true, but as you know, they won't hear that. We have to keep what you said in our minds as what bolsters us to stand these people down and say, for example, you are not going to determine the hire. You are not going to change the entire curriculum of this private school. Because you are oversimplifying, they won't hear it, but you know you're right because you understand that they're oversimplifying and dumbing down history. But really, I have said long before the Great Awakening, as Matt Iglesias calls it, that the end of the war on drugs would turn Black America upside down within one generation. I firmly believe that if there were no such thing as the possibility of making even half a living by selling hard drugs on the street. If that just wasn't possible, instantly. The black men who settle for that because it's available and they've had crummy schooling would leave high school, probably finishing it, more likely to finish it, and get legal work. And no, they wouldn't be working at Lehman Brothers. It would start out pretty menial, but then one thing leads to another and anything they did would be better than selling drugs on the street, not developing any real job skills and either aging out of the job or going to jail and coming back addicted to something and unhirable because you've been to jail. That trajectory is just, you know, it defines Black Newark, for example. That's not the way it should be. And the war on drugs is very much at the heart of it. And for, you know, people like Coates, you can say the war on drugs was instituted partly out of racist sentiments, certainly. So get rid of it. You, know, you want to get rid of the systemic racism? There you go, Kendi. There's some racism to get rid of. We'll just elide the whole chronological aspect. But I really think that. But we have made some progress then, in that. When we, in terms what? of in terms of cannabis, a lot of that is sort of. We're getting there. Yeah. Going and through. so it's something and, that's actually plausible in terms of how society is beginning to think. Yeah. And then, in addition, I have this second plank that we don't need to get into. But the third one is that 
as we get rid of the war on drugs, focus on vocational education. We must get past this idea that the default American experience is to have four years of college, you know, possibly living in a dorm. That's not the way Americans thought until after World War II. I've never quite understood it. College is fun, but it should be something that you do if you wish to do that. Half of America's colleges and universities should shut down. That's something else that the pandemic may already have accelerated. And it should be considered typical that you leave high school, or maybe that should be 13th grade, but I've stopped arguing for that. And then go, go to work. And you could live a thoroughly coherent middle, even upper middle class existence without having a college degree. We need to fund it. We need to emphasize it. We need to make it more of a cultural mean to respect and cherish working class trajectories. And I think that's what a lot of these underserved black men would do. As quiet as it's kept, welfare reform 25 years ago made life a lot better for a great many poor black women. It wasn't perfect, but it's better than it was before. And it's getting to the point where you have to be a certain age to remember what life was like for a lot of those women from the mid 70s to the mid 90s. Now it's the men. And I think the men would be benefited from no war on drugs, no cops in their face all the time, and also a society that shepherds them into getting steady and remunerative work. If we did that, wake up 25 years from now and the whole way we talk about race would be transformed. And so many people who were black would be doing okay. That the notion that this is a permanently racist society would sound like something a few crazy intellectuals like to say. That's what I would like to say. That's that. The only, the, my only complicating thought with that is simply that we also need to do some work on our economic structure because before the 60s, I mean, in the manual labor, menial labor, whatever you want to call it, doing things that people need, which is another way of doing it, which is an incredibly satisfying way of life. I mean, there's nothing less, more, more disorienting than feeling that no one needs you. That's what gives people meaning. But the rewards of that have been so etiolated in comparison with the economic rewards of a college education, that unless we find some way to, to rebalance that, which would mean thinking about things that, you know, Trump even talked about, a little bit of maybe trade protectionism. What about restriction of immigration to, to, to stop this constant downward push of labor costs because you're constantly competing against people who are prepared to work for nothing, basically. That you'd have to do that within the context of a, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I am saying this because after 30 years of watching uh, neoliberal economics have a catastrophic success, as it were. In other words, it worked so well, it created this crazy accumulation of wealth at the top, which was not entirely foreseeable, certainly made much more potent through the web and through the onset of that revolution, in which in many ways, these poor nerds that used to have no life at all are now the lords of the universe. And so <laughs> there's a kind of nice <laughs> paradox to that. But nonetheless, I think you have to, that has to be a part of it. How, here's my question, because, and this is one we're not, again, I've raised this occasionally and been smacked down hard about fatherhood, because we do know, we absolutely know. I mean, here's what I was, you said, get rid of the war on drugs, we would have that. I would think that if the African-American family had the same structure as the average Asian-American family, I mean, obviously there are massive bell curves here. There are great African-American families. There are terrible Asian-American, but generally, then there would be no problems. We would have, especially black men, 
And that mm-hmm. does seem to me the problem. It's hard to say that racism is everything when you see such disparate outcomes between black men and black women. That, mm-hmm. that adds a complication to it, right? And I do think that the boys that we're talking about have, are profoundly disabled by the lack of a father in the household all the time. Yeah, it's real. And I don't talk much about family because there's a PR aspect of things. And by PR, I mean, I want to discourage a certain kind of person from thinking I'm being punitive, especially because Mm -hmm. I'm a man. And when you say these things, it often sounds like you're dissing the women. But those are very real issues. And I consider the end of the war on drugs and a focus on vocational education as spurs to men hanging around and being present for their children. And the truth is, I don't know if I can say that everybody should stay married. I think modernity is that that idea that you stay married because of the kids be questioned. I certainly don't. My parents shouldn't have stayed married. I had a very middle class upbringing, but they were the last generation that felt it to be somewhat shameful. They should have broken up. And I'm sure that's true of people at all socioeconomic levels. And so not married, but around. You can't be around if you're in jail. And certainly you need the father optimally to be there. It's not a it's it's not absolutely impossible to raise a child alone, but it's better if they're two parents. And that would really solve our problem with the disproportionately violent black boys. All of this would be a much better America. And once again, we're kind of getting there in that it's easy for you or to me to complain about the epidemic of teen pregnancies. And what we really mean mostly is black and Latina women. That's not what it used to be for reasons that nobody is exactly sure of. And so we're moving towards this focus on what could be a family. Because yes, the idea that the vast majority of black kids grow up single, it's funny, many people would find it hard to imagine. I once had an extended conversation with Al Sharpton. He happened to see me walking by his room at MSNBC and he called me in and we had a long talk. And the thing that I was most touched by that he said many interesting things. And he was saying that with all of these cases that he jumps into where a black boy or a young black man has been killed by a cop, he said he couldn't think of one where there was a dad. You know, the the, the dad at home, never, and maybe there's a dad somewhere. Just regular, there's never a dad. That's not an accident. And that is the sort of thing that we do need to work on, but not by saying, this is the problem. Some people on the right say, Black people need to value the family more. That has no effect whatsoever. We have to create that with policies that would lead to it through indirection, you know, call this kind of cast Sunstein, but that's the way things sometimes have to work. How do you regard the rise of the far right, often motivated by some hideously racist ideas and concepts? And one of the pragmatic arguments that people make to me is that why on earth are you going on about this stuff when in fact we're facing an imminent fascist takeover of our country by a bunch of people who genuinely some of whom genuinely could and should be called white supremacists not i think a small proportion of them the vast majority are not in that camp so in fact at this time we should shut the fuck up and in the broad scheme of things whose side are you on how do you mm-hmm. how would you counter that argument? Yeah. Those people are scary. And one thing that I think to myself is social media is revolutionary in ways that 
we have yet to truly catch up to socio-historically in terms of historiography. The question is, if you have ways of being in touch so constantly and so warmly, as with Facebook and Twitter in particular, both of which peak in 2009, the question would be, why would there not be a proliferation of white racist hate groups? Of course that happened, among a great many other wonderful things. Of course that happened. And then you see what happened on January 6th. And yes, I hear this. That's the real threat. And I say, bullshit. People are using groups like that as an excuse to try to shut down this quote-unquote anti-woke movement because they don't like hearing it. But what it comes down to is this. What institutions are those people taking over? And I've seen this deflected with, look at the Supreme Court, look at what conservatives are doing. That, that's not the question. This kind of person who's storming the Capitol, this kind of, frankly, raggedy ass, often white supremacist sort of person with the Confederate flag, this scary person, and now we've got some of them with guns. I'm quite aware of that. What are they taking over? They ran up some steps. Yes, and that was truly scary. That happened one time because it happened. And now there's hypervigilance. The chance that it'll ever happen again is slim there or anywhere else significant. And so what are they taking over? Where is? Now, I openly admit that there's an extent to which I'm saying this because I teach at a university. I write for the media. I read The New Yorker. You know, I lead that kind of Brie and Chardonnay life. <laughs> but if academia, if the arts, if legal theory are being taken over by this new idea, I'm alarmed. And I wonder what kind of country we're in, where a certain kind of person says, who cares if the way we think and the way we express ourselves and what we think of as justice is being taken over by a radical and unreasoning ideology, when on the right wing, you have people running up the steps and you have some state legislatures trying to keep racism from being taught in the schools. Why is what I just mentioned more significant than the first thing? I'm mystified, or I, Frank, I'm not. It's this religious kind of sentiment. I see the far-right racists as disgusting, sometimes a little scary, but I don't see that as about to take over the United States. Depends on what you call the United States. I see institutions being shackled and strangled by electism, and I find it more alarming. Maybe I wouldn't if I were a different kind of person, but I live in this, and I think that the this that I live in is a crucial component of a functioning nation. And I don't want to see it ruined. I agree with you. I, I would simply say I don't know why you can't tackle both. Why someone has to be, every time you mention it, it's a kind of sophisticated piece of sophistry to say, why aren't you writing about this? The truth is, if you go back to my own like subject, you'll see I'm writing about both all the time. I've never <laughs> stinted about Trump, never stinted about the Republicans, and constantly have written about that. Every time you focus on the workers, people don't want to hear. I think they don't want to hear it because it makes them uncomfortable. They don't, they're, they're really leery of the reality of this, which is it is taking over. But let me say the argument would be this, that in fact, these people, at least elements of these people, have taken over one of the major political parties. That this is, that it's structurally different. That Trump represented a reformulated white nationalism that has been put on steroids in a way by mass non-white immigration. And that has, in fact, that is a very profound shift, certainly in the 21st century, certainly since the 90s through now, the, the sheer shift of demographics in this country, the sense that it's being done, you know, the whole 
Tucker Carlson great replacement theory. Now, I would say, here's what I would say, is like, I think that's something we should be concerned about as a country because we've seen that allowing permissive mass immigration has, for reasons that if anybody has any understanding of history or human nature, would predict would have something like this in response to it. It did in the mm-hmm. 20s. It's, it has done in every major European country. Therefore, can we get a grip on that and try and slow that down or at least acknowledge the anxieties are not entirely evil. They are actually just very human. Their response is that just proves what racist these people are. But it does give credence to part of the work argument that, in fact, you know, this political party, one of the major political parties, is dedicated to this principle of, of white nationalism in a way it hasn't been in a very long time. And that that is that justifies, in some ways, the extreme uh, versions of leftism that we're now seeing in the establishment. In fact, trying to do it quickly before they come in and undo it all. That kind of Manichaean, instead of having compromise, you just have one absolute ideology coming in and trying to trash everything the previous absolute ideology did and vice versa. So how do you respond to that? I mean, the, the Republicans have changed. This is really dangerous. Every Everything you say is objectively pro-Trump, <laughs> just, just to throw mm-hmm. a few phrases at you. Is there a way to say, I mean, my response is like, why not both? If, if, if I believe in a liberal society, if I believe in equal opportunity, if I believe in an inclusive America, which I do, and if we have a certain amount of pride, and I think that's the perspective I want, I pride in this, the most multicultural, multiracial country that's ever existed on earth, that is also relatively, what, hugely economically successful and has at least so far managed in the last few decades to have not a complete social breakdown over these tensions, which are inevitable. So how do we, is that the way we put it? We just say, look, why not both? Definitely, why not both? And also just perspective. And so let's say that there is a racialized, racismed element in what has happened to the Republican Party in the wake of Donald Trump. You know, just personally, I would say, you know, if anybody says that I'm, you know, on the side of Trump or enabling Trump, I have a solid record of, you know, four years of ripping him a new one every time that I could. And so, frankly, it would have to be something I'm doing quite indirectly. But more to the point, Let's take a naive person from somewhere. I'm going to pick somewhere just as random and unloaded as possible. We're going to take a peasant from a small town in Estonia, and we're going to bring them to Chicago. We're going to give them hardcore lessons in English, but they're going to always be accompanied by somebody who gives them instant translation from English into Estonian. We're going to put them in an apartment somewhere in downtown Chicago, and they're going to learn about Chicago. What is the race situation in America? Now, they're going to see Marjorie Taylor Greene on TV, and you're going to show them some, you know, some crazy white racists online saying some really menacing things. And they're going to realize that they're in a city that is run by black people, a school system that is run by black people. They're going to take in a popular culture where black people are, especially lately, given a centrality of place that would have been unthinkable as recently as 20 years ago. They're going to see a Chicago with a whole mix of different people, for the most part, getting along fine. And I desperately hate to say this, but they would also see an awful lot of poor Black people killing each other and sometimes other people 
vastly disproportionately to the extent to which other people kill those black people. But what they would basically see is a Chicago which, if you brought Richard Russell, or if you brought James Vardaman, or if you brought some good old-fashioned white supremacist to life and said, hey, look at this, that person would have to wretch by the side of the road after about 10 minutes of seeing what they saw. Yes. If that means nothing, if that means that January 6th means that I have to shut up, then I am dealing with somebody who is not facing reality as I know it, but is operating within an ideological, and I say religious bubble, that we have to learn to step around rather than pretend makes any sense. That strikes me as incredibly sane. I, it's sometimes, I've met a few asylum seekers here from, from Zimbabwe, uh, gays, young mm. gay men, mm. uh, who of course are under murderous threat in that country. And I've asked them, they've been here a couple of years and I've met a couple of them and, and I was asking one of them, so how, what do you think of this country? Like, do you think of it as terribly homophobic? Do you think of it as uh, racist? Uh, what has been your actual personal experience interacting with other people? It's like, it's fucking paradise. <laughs> I mean, that's what they will say. It's, it's, I can't believe it exists. How could I ever not be here? And we also have the evidence, just the sheer massive evidence. 86% of our immigrants are non-white. 86 Do you think a white supremacist country would allow that to happen? I mean, that is a staggering fact. But people mm -hmm. can genuinely say this country is a white supremacist country when it has all of this in it. And I think the other question here is this, and we've been guilty of it too, but just by the terms of our discussion, is that no one talks about African-American success either. I mean, the success of black women, the emergence of a strong black middle class in many major cities. I mean, I, this was fascinating to me in the 2016 election campaign, because if you remember, there was one moment in which Donald Trump got out of there and said, your lives are shit, basically. It can't get any worse. <laughs> Vote for me. Yeah. We know what fucking hell you guys live in, which is sort of what. And then the left was suddenly like, what are you saying? You're impugning uh, all the success of black people. And I was like, well, now you tell us. There's a sense in which we are also crudely assuming that black people can't succeed in this country where so many obviously are. Uh, and I want, you, you earlier, I mean, disparaging sort of music and sports and other things in terms of just as a rather stereotypical and rather not as accomplished as CEOs or whatever. But in fact, in our culture, they're incredibly powerful. They are terribly lucrative. They, I think of a kid like Lil Nas X, who's one of my current heartthrobs, and the music is fantastic. He's a tw like 22-year-old, openly gay black dude who's now the second biggest streaming downloader in the world. Mm -hmm. I, that is not a world, that is not a country, it seems to me, that is enforcing white supremacy. It's a fantastic achievement. And it's not, he's not doing it to suck up to white people. He's not doing it. He's not appropriating anything. He's actually developing a kind of poppy, hip-hop kind of sound that's... I don't know, you can like it or hate it, but it's definitely a creative thing. And I, when I, as an Englishman, arrived in America, the one thing that struck me, and I've said this before, but is the white people don't realize how black they are <laughs> in America. It's that the, I've often made that point. Yeah. It is, 
you have to have grown up among only white people to realize how different it is. The way people speak, the way people interact, the, the incredible power of African-American culture in creating America. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm tired of hearing so much about the failures and nothing about, I mean, is there any more successful group in the world in terms of global cultural power than African-Americans? Mm -hmm. And imagine everything you just said, which is simple fact, and then take this person with, you know, a PhD who's walking around with a knit brow arguing that we're in a white supremacist nation and that things have changed only in texture over the past 350 years. And you can see that there's a radical disjunction between the reality and this attitude and that what happens to the occasional black man at the hands of a white cop does not negate that at all. A lot of people say, yeah, well, look at George Floyd. But the answer is look at everything that you just said. And the thing is, some people could say that what you're talking about is very modern. But I used to make a list way back when I first started commenting on race, where I would try to keep myself sane. I had a list that I made in 2001 of evidences of black success with things like Condoleezza Rice on it. Even then, you could have made the point that you're making. You don't have to be as modern as, you know, Lil Nas X, who wasn't even born when I practically wasn't born when I made that list. It's been this way for a long time. Black Americans are a very successful group of people among whom we have a segment, sometimes called a quarter, sometimes called a third who need special help. Most black people are not poor, for example. The fact that we're not supposed to say that is indication of a socio-political ideology that has fallen out of step with reality or even with a sincere desire to create change. And that's a terrible thing to have to say about people who are trying their best, who are very intelligent, and who really see themselves as doing what you might call God's work. But it's a tragedy. And when white people join in with this way of thinking to the extent that they have since June 2020, I get alarmed because there are more white people than black people. And despite what you said, white people do still have more power. And so that is a lot of what made me write this crazy tract, as you call it. That's exactly what it is. It's a tract. I want it to be readable. It's not a book. It's a tract. Because this cannot be the American consensus. The facts are too clear. One last question, John. Mm -hmm. You're embedded in liberal institutions. I have been most of my life too. The toll of existing as a member of minority who is actually not echoing what they believe the minority should be echoing. In other words, a black face without a black voice, to quote Cynthia McKinney. <laughs> How have you managed that psychologically, emotionally? How do you manage it? You seem along with Glenn Lowry, who's just, I'm just, he seems to be actually at the peak of his powers now, <laughs> the peak of his rhetorical and intellectual powers. I'm watching him absolutely flourish in the last two years in ways that he's always been amazing, but I've just seen, you seem preternaturally uh, measured, calm. You don't vent. I'm guilty of, of venting occasionally or getting mad, but... How do you manage it? How do you stay sane? That's a good question, Andrew. I My presence in these institutions, despite not agreeing with those institutions' views on race, goes back further than many know. I first became persona non grata in late 1996 when I was at UC Berkeley, of all places, and I did not agree with the Oakland School Board's take on the use of Black English in schools. That's when I first got my taste of 
people reading me as some kind of heretic when I thought I was just making an attempt to make sense. And, you know, there's a certain kind of person who would have folded because you get called a lot of dirty names. And there is a part of me that has always been an arrogant little person. That's what I think people thought of me when I was three or four years old. I mean, nowadays people say it more softly and they call me confident. And I sound like I'm blowing my own horn, but I'm honestly not. It's just that I remember looking back. I can look back at the way people treated me at UC Berkeley in the 90s. And it wasn't every day. It wasn't most people. But I can look back and think of about 25 things that happened to me over the years. And I think, boy, those people hated my guts. And I sometimes think if I had stayed at Berkeley, I left in 02, there might have been more. It would have gotten worse. And if there had been social media when I was at UC Berkeley, I would definitely have been mobbed viciously. But I just think to myself, I stood there. There was once um, I had a debate. I'm not going to say with who, but it was one of these was one of these bigotry against black boys people in front of an extremely biased crowd. I would say two-thirds of the room thought I was the devil. I was getting hissed. I was getting yelled at. I was getting catcalled. I had people standing up and saying mean things. It's pre-YouTube, and so there's no recording of it, so you can't see it. But, you know, I left that thing and had a nice night, and it wasn't hard. It wasn't that I was trying to hold in the tears. There's a part of me that just thinks, if I thought it out and it makes sense to me, there's nothing anybody can tell me to make me doubt it. And I don't, that just kind of, sticks with me and it's not and it's not a matter of me bucking up i don't have to buck i just kind of think if that's what they think it must be for example not that they're crazy not that they're mean but they have a different way of parsing the world which makes sense to them and i'm trying to figure it out the religious part for example but you know i don't know what's going to happen now we have been away from campus for about a year and a half i'm back at columbia i don't know what's going to happen there are inevitably students at this point, who don't like you because of your views on this sort of thing. Very few students are so bold as to come throw it in your face, especially if you're going to give them a grade. However, I highly suspect I'm going to start being able to smell it more than I used to be able to. And you know what? That's just the way it's going to have to be because I have a lot of hobbies and a lot of friends and a pleasant life. I just don't feel it the way I think a lot of people would. Maybe there's something missing in me, but if I think it out, if I really sit down and it works for me, the fact that somebody says I'm a bad person doesn't affect that. It just doesn't. It never has. And it never will. That's the best answer I can give to that question. I, I'm so grateful for your honesty, though. It so resonates with me, too. We just uncovered sure it does. A, a YouTube <laughs> at the new school, the great gay debate, it was called. And man, I, I, having written Virtue Normal, having written all the arguments for marriage equality and so on, I was, I was regarded as a, 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 a demon. A, 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 oh, you know, yeah. Devil's an, spawn. Right. An anti-Tom or whatever. <laughs> they would, they would de <laughs> demonize. In that, in that meeting, one of the other speakers said in defending, attacking me, that he would have outed Roy Cohn, equating me, who mm. had, had campaigned and been out mm. and mm. even openly HIV positive for years as a closeted persecutor of homosexuals and to which i just i'm just befuddled and but what i come back to is did they refute my argument i've thought about this quite hard what point did they make that makes exactly. the arguments that i've made untrue and if we stick with it and then we actually we had this wonderful experience of winning 
those things <laughs> against <laughs> many of their views. But the truth is what happens then is that they just, it just it, it's erased from history. It's erased from memory. And we're back to the um, terrible oppression of, at this point, LGBTQIA plus, plus, plus the people. And there's no recognition of progress, even in the situation there, which is unbelievable progress. Um, it shows a proof yeah. that you can have whatever success you want. And these people will still think we're living in oppression. Um, Always. I just want to take them They're to Saudi unreachable. Arabia or Nigeria or Zambia, these places <laughs> where these refugees came from, and ask them, you, the use of the word oppression in this context is obscene. With respect I would to use that word. Out, yes. of his, out of historical context and geographic context, it is obscene. And anyway, so it, it's, it's, it, maybe I mean, I've also been regarded as a cocky asshole from, the, from high school onwards. So I'm happy to, to count you as one of these freaks uh, like me. And it's been lovely to talk to you. I, I hope one day we can actually meet. We haven't ever. Um, but, uh, no, we haven't. But I wish you great with this book. It's called Woke Racism. You can read it in an afternoon. It is a tract. It is pungent. It is powerful. It is impassioned. And it's super smart, as you would expect from John McWhorter. Thank you so much for joining me. We have some amazing guests coming up. We have Dominic Cummings, the guru of Brexit, coming. We have Anne Coulter coming on the podcast. We have Steven Pinker. We have a stellar lineup for the four, and we're very proud of it. And thanks, John, for coming on. Appreciate it. And I'll see you all next week. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you very much. You bet. You're a personal hero of mine. And I think the one thing you need to know is that there are lots of third parties out there not involved in this fight watching it. And mm. you may not persuade the religious convert converts, but you have an effect on those weighing the two sides and seeing your rigor and honesty. And I'm, I'm sorry to say also the fact that you are black does make a difference in all that. Oh, it does. It That's just the it way does. it has to be. Yeah. 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 As long as I can get some people to listen, I've done my job. But yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>